Welcome to your agenda to Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Jeff Balti. Dr. Balti is the Director of Cellular Imaging at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Cell Engineering. He's also a professor of radiology and radiological science. So Dr. Balti, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. My pleasure. So I understand that your interests are in the line of imaging and tracking cells. I presume both therapeutic cells as well as cancer cells. Is that a correct presumption? Primarily, we're interested to track therapeutic cells, also immunotherapeutic cells, that can be applied to combat cancer. We develop techniques that are clinically applicable in order to improve the current existing therapies as well as develop new ones. I work at a medical school, and the goal of our research is translational with the aim to bring this into the clinic, hopefully applicable to many situations. So I know that uh, many scientists have interest and aspirations to track cells. At least has been in the past a very challenging uh, assignment. I noticed that you're making some notable progress in this regard. Uh, Can you elaborate briefly about your technique and uh, where it stands at this point? Traditionally, the ways uh, people have been doing that, uh, some research that dates back to my PhD work a long time ago, is using magnetic nanoparticles that disturb the magnetic field, basically where the cells are. You get black spots on the images. There have been about 10 clinical trials being performed with that. Um, The goal is to see where you inject the cells. Currently, we are developing novel ways to image cells with naturally occurring peptides and proteins and sugars. We call them bioorganic agents. They can be detected by a special kind of MRI called SESTMRI or chemical exchange saturation transfer. And I think the future of tracking cells is not just to see where they are, but to see if they're dead or alive, if they produce certain enzymes, essentially what they are doing, and at this point that's where the field is going. So you indicated that your initial efforts were in the area of adding nanoparticles to the cells. Uh, I seem to recall that there always was some debate about the effect of the nanoparticles on the system that you were trying to assess. So I, I would assume then the use of tracking peptides and the like is a more, I'll use the words, less invasive technique. You mean perhaps more biocompatible? The products we have been using are composed of iron. We humans have four grams of iron in the body. The amount of iron is very, very little, and our body knows how to deal with iron, and it will use that iron again. So that's fairly safe. The other way some people have been working with, and my lab has also done a little bit of that, is working with fluorin particles. They cannot be metabolized. They just leave the body as a gas. Now, these new peptides and sugars, they're actually analogs or naturally occurring molecules. It's a kind of a double-edged sword, I think. You could also say because they are part of the natural biochemistry of the body, of the reaction, they will 
become part of it. So with other words, they will be integral in the pathways. So having a lot of that, we will need to see if that's indeed as safe. But we have good hopes. So in terms of cell tracking technologies, do these work better in any particular part of the body or are these techniques universally applicable? We like the brain because the brain always looks the same. We hope. In most people, it's a very anatomically defined um, area. Some of our newer MRI techniques are a little bit susceptible to motion artifacts. So if we do something in the abdomen or something that moves all the time or the breathing, it doesn't help. Traditionally, MRI is very good to look at the brain. The structures are defined. So I would say a lot of proof of principle. New techniques we perform in the brain with the goal once we see the cells there, then to apply it to other areas in the body. So do the nanoparticles exit the system, so to speak, or once they're injected, they have a long residence time? It depends on what cells you put them in. In general, I think it's fair to say after a couple of weeks, they are, are biodegraded and the iron eventually is going back in the normal iron pool in red blood cells. Erythrocytes, you find it a lot for the fluorine particles. Eventually, you just exhale it either through the lungs or you pass it as gas. It just leaves the body as a uh, volatile compound. In terms of labeling cells, is there a way to label different cells so you can define cell A versus cell B, etc.? You can do that when you modify the particles that they only bind to certain surface molecules specifically expressed by that cell. Anti-CD3 antibodies and T-cells have CD3, B-cells do not have it, so then you just label the T-cells. This is important if you have mixed cell populations, so you just want to label a subset. A lot of these cell therapeutic applications, they already have purified cells, be it neural stem cells or dendritic cells for cancer vaccines. So it's not an active area of interest, I would say, but um, it is possible when we develop specific targeting techniques. So is the strategy to follow cells or to periodically assess the location of injected cells? Is this real-time or is this incremental observations? The clinical application will be real-time, for instance, and this will be done in the scanner. If a radiologist wants to inject cells in a lymph node, he wants to see when he pulls out the needle or the catheter that the cells are indeed there, and that can be very tricky. So it's real-time injection. You can see how cells flow into the brain if they're injected in the carotid artery in a stroke model. I think the follow-up studies are also important, but with the nanoparticles, there are a number of issues. And when cells divide, they dilute the label, sometimes towards undetectable levels. Another issue, a lot of cells will die. That's a natural process. And the particles can be taken up by other cells of the body, so you are not really tracking your cells anymore. And for these reasons, currently, we are developing these new reporter genes and sensors and molecules that can report long-term on these cells. I would say the long-term tracking would be an added bonus, but it has a lot of pitfalls. So as with any scientific endeavor, there's a 
various stages of maturity as it relates to clinical use. And you mentioned early on in our discussion that one of your commitments was to make technologies available for clinical use. Can you give us a brief assessment of the sort of the clinical state of the art and where you see this going in perhaps five years? The magnetic nanoparticle story is as follows that the particles that were used were, was a clinical formulation approved by the FDA for a different application. It was a liver agent. So they were used off-label, sort of pharmaceutical preparations, and they were safe. Now, that product has been taken off the market, essentially, because MRI has gotten so good that we don't need those materials anymore to do liver imaging. So this has set the field back. People are now using other particles that are not as good. They are developed to treat anemia. So that currently, I would say, is on hold. In the meantime, uh, a first clinical trial using that fluorine has been published uh, last year. And the main issues there are the sensitivity and the need for dedicated hardware and coils. I think the field, where it will be in five or ten years, will be the vision and the understanding that there is a sufficiently large need for clinical MRI cell tracking that someone is going to develop particles and put the money in there that are clinically viable and clinically approved. Now, there are other developments at this point as well in the imaging field. There are attempts by several companies to develop a new technique Magnetic particle imaging, I think most people may not have heard of that. But these need a clinical tracer as well. And it is expected, perhaps, that the two techniques can be combined using the same particle. And my prediction is that maybe in five or ten years, we will see that marriage happen. So I noticed that uh, you also had some studies on encapsulated pancreatic beta cells. I presume this is for the treatment of diabetes? Correct. And is the encapsulation the challenge, or are there other technical challenges in this particular approach? The encapsulation, the idea is to immunoprotect these cells against the host immune system. These capsules are made from seaweed. Um, they're called alginate capsules. The problem with these capsules, a few clinical studies have been done, is that still they're not biocompatible. Uh, there may be a number of reasons that the body recognizes it as foreign and starts building up immune cell infiltration, and at some point these capsules just break apart or they choke the cells. What we are proposing to do, and I may get funded for this, I just got some news that looks hopeful, is put a fluorine in these capsules, and then when the capsules break, that fluorin will leak out and will be exhaled, disappeared. So you have now a technique that you can look at the capsule stability. At the same time, with colleagues at Hopkins, Dr. McMahon, we have devised MRI methods that we can sense image dead immune infiltrations. Now we can look if the body is creating a foreign body immune response and how that relates to the capsule. So the issue in the material science field is there is no capsule at this point that is 100% unrecognized by the body. So these capsules are nanodiameter capsules, is that correct? They are about, give or take, 400 micrometer 
in diameter. You can see them with the naked eye. And they're typically just injected into the, the bloodstream. No, there's various sites you can put them in. It's actually not clear what's the best site. They can be ejected under the skin, under the kidney capsule, in the portal vein, in the liver. We are currently exploring. The clinical trials have been done intraperitoneally. We just inject them in the abdomen. It's not clear. You have to have an area, though, that is well perfused. If you inject them just in the bloodstream, they're large, so they can clog up things. Sounds like a... Very interesting approach if you can solve the material property issues that you described. So Dr. Balti, uh, thank you for sharing with us your pioneering studies. I will put a link on the podcast website to your website if you, if our listeners have any interest in exploring in more detail your pioneering work. Uh, we remind our listeners you can reach us for suggestions on podcasts at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And until we meet again, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Thank you for listening.